Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to dive into another Texas Killing Field mystery, and we are going to focus on the unsolved murders. When I think about Texas Killing Field, these are the ones that I find the most haunting because some of them are a really big question mark. As you'll find as we continue on, some of these we have a lot of information on. We know where they came from. We know exactly what they were doing, what they were wearing, how they were found. And for other women, we found literally three lines worth of information. And that's all we could find. And that's absolutely just heartbreaking that these people lived lives, had family somewhere, and then this happened to them and no one knows much about them. Yeah, it really is just devastating. We talked about it in our first episode where we talked about Texas Killing Field. But this is one that we did tons and tons of research on when we first started, when we were just baby true creeps rather than adolescent true creeps that we are now, which apparently were going very fast in my brain. We did a deep dive then. And then we also looked into like, have there been any updates in these cases? Because we know that a whole case can change from one piece of evidence or one discovery or that kind of thing. So definitely something we're going to keep following up on. Yeah. So on our website, we have our ongoing case section. We mentioned that with Laurie Vallow and Chad Daybell. We'll release updates on Laurie Vallow and Chad Daybell, but we'll also have updates on our website under ongoing cases. And we'll also have a little bit more information on this under ongoing cases. Yeah, because it is a lot of information. There's a lot of people. And if something does get updated, we'll make sure to let you know. Also, as you know, if you listen to podcasts, ratings and reviews are very, very helpful. And we would so appreciate if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. We'll send a sticker to people who leave a review and send us an email with their address and a screenshot of the review. Our email address is truecreepspod at gmail.com. And the stickers are super cute. We'll have a picture of them on our Instagram. And we'd very much appreciate if you take a couple minutes and do that for us. It also can be done for Android users. However, you'll have to access the iTunes library on your computer. When you get your fancy little fun sticker, if you tag us on your pictures, we'll repost you as well. And with that, we will start our dive into the unsolved cases of the Texas Killing Fields. We've talked about Texas Killing Fields before. If you've listened to our previous episode, you're going to know a little bit about what I'm going to say. One of the things that we're really trying to do is that not having two-part episodes for the most part. So our episodes are standalone episodes. So you can listen to this first or you can listen to Calder Road first. And either way, it's going to make sense. So when we talk about Texas killing fields, we're talking about the victims for the stretch of I-40 between Galveston and League City. We, in our research, we found a total of 47 women who have disappeared or have been murdered between 1974 and 2021. The ages have ranged from 12 years to 57 years of age at the time of their disappearance. Originally, Texas killing fields was the field off of Calder Road in League City, but it's been expanded to talk about the expanse of I-45 between Galveston and League City. So it's kind of, it's not really a field, it's... Multiple fields. The whole area around a highway, basically. 
So today we're going to cover unsolved murders and disappearances. We've already talked about Calder Road. And in future episodes, we're going to talk about the solved murders, some of which were perpetrated by serial killers. We'll get into it specifically for one of these. If you have heard of the forum Web Sleuths, a treasure trove of information and wonderful humans trying to help solve cases and bring closure to families. Love them. One of the women that we're going to talk about today, she's never been found. And in September of 2020, they actually like they found somebody on NamUs who might be her. So when you're listening to these stories and you're thinking like, oh, this was a long time ago. Like, what could I know? You could know something. So when we have information on who you would contact for local law enforcement, we'll include it. But only reach out if you have actual information, not just hunches. The first person we are going to talk about tonight is Brenda Jones, and she was 14 years old at the time of her disappearance. She disappeared on July 11, 1971. Brenda had attended mass, taught Sunday school, then took a bus to go visit her aunt who was in the hospital. She successfully made it to the hospital and had her visit, and then she came back on the bus. The bus driver confirms that he remembers dropping Brenda off at the nearest stop from her house, but she never made it home. She was last seen wearing a satin-like white blouse, a blue skirt, and sandals that laced up to her knees. Brenda's sister, Phyllis, called the police when she didn't arrive home. The police, unfortunately, told her that they wouldn't file a missing persons report over the phone because it was too early. They advised that she came into the station if Brenda didn't make it home the following day. Yeah, what I thought was interesting was the phone portion of it. Like, I've heard that, like, oh, it has to be this amount of hours. But I hadn't heard that you couldn't report it over the phone that you actually had to go in. I think it was more they thought it was just too early because I want to say that was a couple hours after she should have been home. And they think 14 year old girl, maybe she went and saw friends. Maybe she went and did this or that. She'll probably come home tonight. I always find that fascinating because no one is going to understand when someone would usually be home and when something is strange more than the person who actually knows them. Right, right. Now, I did just quickly look it up just to see if that is still common to, you know, have like a waiting period. And for instance, I'm in Arizona. And according to the Phoenix government site, it says there is no time limit to report someone missing. However, they ask that you exercise common sense and exhaust other means before calling the police, which, okay, fair. Also, for just some basic stuff on missing persons, it says on another site that some police departments will ask that you wait 24 to 72 hours before filing an official report. Here's my thing that with children, absolutely not. Like your child doesn't come home. Like you should be able to go to the police. Oh, she's just out having a rager. You know, Brenda, who teaches Sunday school, then went to go see her aunt in the hospital. Right. Well, it does say it depends on other information. So, of course, I don't know if that means age or, you know, they someone saw them getting into a strange car. There's there's probably different reasons they'd act faster than others. But the fact that there's still a time frame for some departments makes me a little sad. When a child goes missing, I feel like we've all heard like if they're not found within the first 48 hours, like they might not be found alive. Again, also, we're talking about 1971. Yeah. yeah. When (laughs) how do you investigate a missing child is way, way different. Yeah, for sure. Much, much different. But I do get to like a kid could be, I don't know, a couple minutes late and certain families would probably be losing their minds when maybe it's not the first time they've come home super late or not the first time that they've gone other places. So I guess it's a hard line to balance. 
it's a hard line to balance in cases where you find out other facts later. Yeah. If someone had taken you seriously, it could have made all the difference. Yeah, it hurts your heart. It's so infuriating. Absolutely. Well, the following morning, she still did not return home. A couple things were happening almost at the same time. A crew that was painting the Pelican Island Bridge noticed something floating in the water. So they called Galveston Police Department. The police found a body of a nude black woman whose hands, wrists, and ankles were bound with long plastic laces. The laces were from her sandals. Police didn't see any identification on her, so they didn't know who it was because they didn't have a missing persons report yet. Yep. So luckily, someone in that office remembered the family calling because a police officer then went to Brenda's home to ask for a photo of her. Once they saw the photo, they asked her mother to accompany them to the morgue to confirm that the body they found was indeed Brenda's. The medical examiner determined that she had been murdered by manual strangulation just hours before she was found. So from the time that they wanted to make the police report to probably the early hours of the morning, she was still alive somewhere. Yeah. The bus driver could confirm that she had been near her home. So they had an area to work from. They weren't like, well, she could have been anywhere. Right. They were like, she, we knew she was here around this time. The fact that she made it so close to home also makes it just even more scary. You know, like she wasn't very far. It was blocks. Yeah. Yeah. The Emmy found her underwear in her mouth and speculated that it had been put there post-mortem, which just seems like a weird signature that doesn't really make a lot of sense because I could see like them not wanting her to scream. But if it was done post-mortem, really, what was the point? Just to be terrible. I can't see any point. And also, like, it feels a lot like something that the killer wanted to do. There's things that people do when committing crimes as like a forensic countermeasure. If anything, that would just help them get found, right? Because it's just like another piece of evidence. Yeah. So, yeah, just terrible. This particular case made me a little more sad because it seems like no one was helping them. Brenda's sister, Phyllis, also said, I had the feeling that they didn't care. Brenda was a black child from the projects. My impression was that they thought her murder wasn't worthy of any real investigation. It just continues to be infuriating. I can't even imagine how angry her family must feel. Not only is she gone, but they could have prevented it. And then it didn't seem like they had any motivation to solve it. Right. Absolutely. So... What Lindsay said at the beginning, there is a possibility that someone saw something, right? I know it's been a long, long time and that 1971 seems like forever ago. But if you had like a friend or a relative or something living in that area, maybe have a quick chat with them. See if they remember anything. So on October 28th of 1972, Gloria Gonzalez, a 19-year-old Hispanic woman who had worked as a bookkeeper for a grocery store, was reported missing by her roommate who had last seen her at their apartment on Jacqueline Street in Houston. At 8 a.m. on November 23rd, a man with a metal detector was walking through a wooded area near a reservoir. This area was a 12,000-acre federal flood control reservation. While he was walking with his metal detector, he found a decapitated, decomposing body. The police found a skull close by in the underbrush, as well as a knit pullover, striped socks, and a ring that said love. Police believe these all belonged to Gloria. The autopsy text suspected that the remains had been face down where they had been found for a while because the pressure points of kind of like how it had leaned into the ground suggested as such. They also believe that the skull had been detached by scavenging animals post-mortem. 
The skull that appeared to have sustained damage from being bludgeoned with a hammer was skeletal, but the body had decomposing flesh, which feels strange, right? It's two different rates of decomposition here. The medical examiner thought that Gloria had died of strangulation because there was a two-foot cotton cord attached to a four-inch piece of wood cinched around her neck. During the autopsy, they realized the skull that they had found wasn't Gloria's. The reason they found this out was because the doctor had examined teeth that were found at the scene because they were still attached to the skull, and he reconstructed the lower jaw to match Gloria's dental x-rays, but one of the molars didn't fit. And so the skull that they found belonged to Colette Wilson, who had also gone missing, and her full remains were eventually found in this area. We'll talk about her in a later episode and when we talk about serial killer Ed Bell. But so the police returned to the scene and looked for the rest of Gloria's remains on November 30th. And when they went back and found her head that had decomposing flesh that kind of matched where her body was. Right. The level of decomposition. Yeah. Yeah. And it also had curly dark hair with a silver barrette. Of all of the unsolved cases that we're going to talk about, this has the most suspects. So it hasn't been solved. But I saw some forums where people suggested that Tony Napa had confessed to Gonzalez's murder. But I couldn't find any news articles on that. So I'm hesitant to say like, oh, some somebody confessed. We know, right? Yeah. Tony Napa was convicted for the murder of Linda Faye Sutherland, who's another Texas Killing Field victim. And I believe that that's the only Texas Killing Field victim that he was involved with. There's also a serial killer who's been dubbed the tourniquet killer. His name's Anthony Allen Shore. And we're definitely going to cover him in a later episode because he has multiple victims that were taken or found along I-45 between Galveston and League City. But so two things that kind of suggest it's him. One, the way that the rope with the wood was found on her neck is very similar to his MO. And also when he was arrested for subsequent murders, I believe that Gloria's name was in his search history. That's creepy. That's very creepy. So another victim, unfortunately, is Mildred Joanne Knighton. She was last seen on Friday, October 20th, 1972, when leaving her home in Pasadena to visit her sister in Laporte. She left in a car of an unidentified friend. And the unidentified friend just kind of gives me Skylar Niece vibes. I don't think I'm familiar with that case. Who's Skylar Niece? So it's a girl who was murdered by her two friends. Like they, they just decided they didn't like her anymore. They were just bullies. And they took her out to like the outskirts and killed her and then helped with the search. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So they're psychos for sure. Absolutely. So on October 23rd, 1972, a couple days after Mildred went missing, her body was found on the side of the road. She had been stabbed to death and newspapers reported the injuries as stabbed, slashed and almost beheaded. I saw numerous old timey newspapers and I say old timey because whenever you take a scan of a newspaper and put it online, it looks like it's from the early 1900s, but it wasn't. It was like from like four years ago. It was from the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. It was from the 70s. But where they kept saying like stab slash and almost beheaded. And I'm like, stop sensationalizing this 15 year old's murder. Yeah. And what I found interesting too, just because a lot of people pointed to truck drivers because all of these murders were like, you know, so far apart. Her body was found by a truck driver that was making a delivery. Suspicious. A lot of people do point to different like traveling occupations that might have been responsible for some of these because of how far apart they were. Yeah. Well, and also because if you're a truck driver, you're covering, like Mena said, like you're covering far distances, but you also, you drive at night. So you see where people aren't. 
So, like, Mildred was stabbed 61 times in the back and nine times in the face. You can't just do that anywhere. No. And that's a long process. Like, you have to be in a secluded area. That's horrible. Yeah. So, Nina Lincluge disappeared on October 22nd of 1975. Her car was later found on the side of the road with a dead battery. Her new decomposed body was found on Thanksgiving of 1975 near the Darrington Prison Farm. And this was about 45 minutes off of I-45. Sometimes we have kind of peripheral things that have happened and we try to like limit it. But it's kind of it looks like a straight shot when you look at directions. So I was like, I could see it being related to this area. Witnesses from when Cluj's body was found say that there appeared to be a gun wound to her head. And Ed Bell, as we mentioned earlier, we're going to have another episode on him. But some think that he was her murderer because they're along with the murders that he confessed to. There's also like, oh, I picked a woman up on this area where he didn't know their actual names. She didn't have a lot of coverage. I think that it's possible that some of his victims, I wonder if he learned their names later when they were covered. But if they didn't get a lot of coverage, he doesn't know their names. I could be wrong on that, but I that would be just my theory. Yeah. Our next case is Michelle Garvey. And so this reminded us a lot of Sally Valentine disappearance, who ended up being Carolyn Eaton, that we talked about last week. They both are pretty similar, unfortunately. Yeah. So Michelle Garvey disappeared a couple of days before her 15th birthday on June 1st, 1982 from New London, Connecticut. And so her family thought that she had snuck out of her bedroom window in the middle of the night to meet someone. She had like ran away, quote unquote, to her aunt's house before. If she like left for a moment, it wouldn't freak them out immediately. But she never came home. So Michelle's body was discovered on July 1st of 1982 in Baytown, Texas, which is about 30 minutes from I-45. But law enforcement couldn't identify her. That's a lot. Like that's a month missing. That's a month missing. And so she was fully clothed, but her shirt had been unbuttoned and she had no bra or shoes. So maybe redressed. Yeah, it seemed like redressed and quickly. The autopsy revealed that there were indicators of sexual assault and that she was murdered by strangulation. Michelle's family didn't know where she went or what had happened to her for almost 30 years. And they never stopped looking for her, which hurts my heart. They turned to psychics. They started studying serial killers and like looking at like what could happen in that area. Her brother, his name's Sean, he even looked up like Texas Killing Field murders because he realized like, like this was around the same time period where like this was really picking up. I wonder if something happened. And so in 2013, Michelle's DNA matched to the remains that had been found in 1982, just a month after she had gone missing. Investigators are still trying to piece together how she got from Connecticut to Texas because they have no clue. Some people think that maybe she was meeting someone that she had like just met and they took her. Yeah. But they don't really know. So old evidence was processed for testing because they think that they might have the murderer's DNA. That's crazy. But they haven't found a match yet. This is being investigated by the Harris County Sheriff's Office, and they actually reopened her cold case in 2017. That's good. Hopefully we'll be able to provide an update in the future that the person was caught. Unfortunately, there are some more unsolved cases. Another one is Sandra Ramber, and she was last seen at her family's home in Santa Fe, Texas on October 26, 1983. The door was left open with biscuits baking when she vanished. So, you know, there's clues that she planned on coming back, whatever she did. Her coat and her purse were also still inside the home. Sandra's father reported her missing the following morning, but she was initially classified as a runaway, which this is kind of a a common thing that we see throughout these 
when it's like a young girl. Oh, they just ran away. Yeah. She was making biscuits. Yeah. And then she decided to run away. She's literally in the middle of doing something. She ran away. Left biscuits in the oven. Not taking my coat. Not taking my wallet. Nothing. Just leaving immediately. And she was also relatively young as well, I want to think. She was only 14 years old. And I, I believe I had read that, yeah, like her purse was there. So any money that she would have had to use to run away was left in the home. Yeah. Yeah. In September of 2020, which wasn't terribly long ago, folks on the Web Sleuth forum reached out to NamUs to see if an unidentified girl who was about 10 to 14 years old, whose partial skeletal remains were found on April 3rd, 1985, could be matched to Sandra's. But we didn't really see an update quite yet. So, I mean, you're hoping, but not hoping. You're hoping that maybe she's alive somewhere, but then also you're hoping to get that family some closure. Yeah, some closure. When we started researching Texas Killing Field, what seems like a lifetime ago, we looked into like NamUs and what that was. And we've already talked about that in previous episodes, but NamUs is the National Missing and Identified Person System. And when you're on there, you can find pictures of missing people, but they also have a section for unidentified remains that they found, where sometimes it is a description and sometimes it's a picture of that person as they found them. And that is a hard thing to look at. And I just want to like point out that there's people on web sleuths who are willing to take on that emotional weight and burden to help other people find closure who they've never met. Yeah. What an altruistic act that you're like, you know what, like I can make some small difference and like maybe I can help this family find one of their like loved ones. I just, I just hits me right in the feels. The community is incredible. So in the early morning of October 7th, 1998, Suzanne Richardson went missing from the hotel where she was working to pay for college. A guest said that they heard a scream and one of her shoes and one of her handbags were found in the parking lot, which was very strange, obviously, right? Yeah, that's scary. Yeah. And so an unidentified person was calling the Crime Stoppers hotline in Brazoria County and they kept suggesting places where her body was. And this led to many fruitless searches where they never found her. Right. And that, that's definitely a tactic, too, to send them in the wrong direction. And they never I don't think they ever figured out who was actually calling. Richardson's parents hired a private detective named William Payne to help investigate her disappearance. Because as you've seen from some of these, like if the parents don't step in, these cases may never be solved. And so there were a few different suspects in her disappearance. So there was Gabrielle Soto, who was never charged, but he died in 2002. So no answers there. Payne also suspected two cousins. A witness claimed to see the two of them digging up Suzanne's remains and moving them to a different location. But when police investigated that second location, they just found animal bones. Well, we know that sometimes they put things under animal bones, too, or near them. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wonder if maybe they just didn't dig far enough. That would be an incredible shame if that was the case. So in 2016, a witness spoke with investigators and said they knew things about the case that weren't released. The witness wanted to stay anonymous, and they told them that Suzanne's remains had been moved, which so this is now the second time they're hearing this, right? What they said was they overheard a conversation between one of the now deceased suspects and a fourth suspect, which included a detail of the abduction and death of Richardson that hadn't been released. And so this witness was one of the original suspect's girlfriends. 
Oh, weird. And you know what's hard, though, too? If they were moving remains around, it's really difficult to, you know, like move them, make sure that you got every piece and every piece of DNA. And then to successfully move them is really difficult because wasn't Vanessa Guillen's remains moved at one point, too? I believe so. And they were buried in that field. There was still something left over. Yeah. And what's interesting, and and we mentioned this in our episode about cadaver dogs, is that one of the things that cadaver dogs can find is a place where there once was a body. So even if it was no longer there, a single piece is not there, they can still smell that. And they can also differentiate between animal and human. So if cadaver dogs were used in a search, it might lead them to finding remains generally. So in 2016, police searched the former home of a deceased suspect, but didn't find anything. We spoke with someone who suspects that their father may be related to the disappearance of Suzanne Richardson because they had committed at least two sexual assaults and and their father lived in close proximity of one of the sites that the private investigator had dug up to see if Richard's remains were there. The person we spoke to thought that maybe they had the wrong location when they did the search because the particular house that his father had lived in was less than 500 feet away from folks who had committed similar crimes and like lived at a location that was similar. Yeah, it was interesting to talk to him. Just the conversation. I think it went on for a while because we just had so many questions. We yeah, so many questions. This next part is what I thought was really fascinating and also frustrating. The person we spoke to tried to provide their DNA to see if they could assist by providing familial DNA, but they were told that their DNA couldn't be entered into CODIS because they hadn't committed a crime. And it makes sense, but like blew my mind that you couldn't be like, I think it's this person. I can give you my DNA. I can't give you theirs. Yeah. And you would think that they'd want, they'd be like, okay, like, why not try it? But then I do see like monetarily, it's going to cost money to do any sort of testing too. But also if that's a lead to a case. Yeah. Why? Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting, right? Because when we think about our right to privacy in relation to our DNA, like I joke that like my mom's gotten a like 23andMe test and I was like, well, I can't commit any crimes now. Thanks. Not that I would anyway. But like (laughs) just the idea of like your family can consent to your DNA being in some system that police could possibly get their little hands on. I find fascinating. Yeah. But a definitely interesting wrinkle. And he has also spoke with law enforcement extensively. So the next one actually involves two different people, and it's Lynette Bibbs and Tamara Ellen Fisher. Lynette and Tamara went to a nightclub and then to a motel on February 1st, 1996. So this one's not as far away as the other ones. You know, like 1996 seems a lot different than the 70s. Yeah, we're getting closer and closer. Yeah, even though it is actually, what do you think about it? Far away. So Lynette and Tamara were found two days later. Lynette was fully clothed, but missing one shoe, and she had a gunshot wound to the back of her head. Tamara was only wearing a cotton blouse and clear plastic sandals. She also had a gunshot wound, but it was to the forehead and below the left ear. So there were no signs of sexual assault on Tamara or Lynette. For Lynette's body, there was no blood leading away. So like where she was, there wasn't any pooling blood or anything being led away. However, for Tamara's body, it was kind of the opposite. She had blood trailing from a nearby dirt road. So that makes me wonder if one was moved or, you know, like the the murder happened somewhere and then the body was moved elsewhere. This is another instance where there was just so little information. Like I saw numerous sources, but they all kind of said the same thing. 
and it doesn't seem like there was much movement in the case. Something that I found interesting, I'm sure, you know, they're, they do exist. But when they disappeared, they were 14 and 15 years old. And to, you know, when you think of someone disappearing at a nightclub, I think of like someone in their 20s. But they were very young. Yeah. What I would imagine like to get into a nightclub it was probably a nightclub for kids. Yeah. I say kids, but like an under 21 nightclub. Yeah. And yeah, that is a kid. <laughs> Look, if you're under the age of 30 to me, now you're a kid. Like Grandma Lindsay. <laughs> where i'm at in life but you know like maybe somebody was a predator there though you know like you just never know because if you know there's going to be a place where young women are going to be that's a hunting ground for you exactly that's what where my head goes first underage nightclub like of course that's like a hunting ground for terrible people because you know all these young underage girls are going to get all dressed up and cute and go and yeah dance and have a good time it makes me so sad yeah So we're now moving into the 2000s. In 2000, Tatsi Harriman left her son's home in League City around 5 a.m. And she had mapped out her route along Route 35. After she left her son's house, she was never seen again. She lived in Florida, but she was visiting Texas because she wanted to purchase property in the area so that she could be closer to her son and the rest of her family, which hurts my heart. And so she was driving a 1995 Lincoln Continental when she went missing. And when she didn't call that evening after she had left, her children started to worry because it wasn't like her. And they reported her missing. But she's never been found. And I want to say, too, that they I believe that they drove that route or they tried to to actually go and search for her themselves, too. Yeah, because they knew where she was going to be. Yeah. Right. And I mean, you're thinking 2000. That was MapQuest era, baby. Like, yeah. They probably saw what her route was. Or if she was like looking on an old fashioned map like folks did, it's still like a relatively easy thing to do if you know where people are going to be. I still know people that keep maps in their cars. As a woman, I can't imagine being lost, pulling on the side of the road and feeling safe with this giant thing that's going to obstruct my vision in every sense, right? Sounds horrible. No, 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 no. I have a pocket-sized digital map now. That doesn't always work when you get in the middle of nowhere. You just keep driving straight. Just keep driving straight. When I was a DM for a training, one of my stores was about two hours away. So I'd have to go once a quarter to that store. And it's in the middle of the woods. And so when I was driving, my phone cut out and I tried to like go back to it and it wouldn't load. And I was just like driving around the woods for probably a half hour, freaking out, thinking I was going to be... Killed by the Blair Witch. She's not on the West Coast. You're good. I guarantee you she travels or has cousins. She has cousins. Oh, my God. Now I'm just thinking of the Blair Witch's cousins. You know who her cousins are. We've talked about them. Gryla. Perchta. Probably. Oh, I love them, though. But yeah, I was just lost in the woods. Like, well, this is where I live now. So I'm never coming home. (laughs) I'm a woman of the woods. (laughs) yeah woof we joke in between not to make levity of these women but because it's such a heavy topic and if you don't take a beat in between gets to you start to get a little numb from it it's hard to really absorb and appreciate and let it knock around in your head if you're just reading them off it's true the first time Amanda and I tried to record Texas Killing Fields episodes, oh, we had 15 hours of audio, Amanda? Like, we literally, we went in chronologically. So we were just like, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. And at the end of it, 
I felt heavy in a way that I've never felt before, even having been through like some stuff in my life. But I felt like a different type of heavy that I can't quite explain. And also in the same way, like completely desensitized. Yeah. Because I was looking at so many horrible, horrible things. I would like stop and take a break and I would go and like sit with my husband and like watch like a silly show. And he's just like, are you okay? And I'm like, I just spent three hours looking at like pictures of people who are no longer alive seeing like, I wonder if I could help find this person. Like, I wonder if this is them. Like and trying to like remember every little detail because like, what if one little detail is all it takes, you know? Exactly. And that's how a lot of cases get solved is one small detail that comes about later when this case has sat there for years. And how sad is it that this many people went missing and or were found in this, I want to say tiny space. It's not a tiny space, but relatively speaking. Compared to the entire U.S., it's a small space. Yeah. Yeah. For this many bodies to be found. Yeah. And still not have answers from 70s. You know, it's just horrific. Yeah. So the next one is Sarah Tusty, and she was last seen riding her bike near a church in the evening of July 12th, 2002. The next day, her bike was found, and it was in the church. Creepy. Yeah, that, that is really unsettling. You, you would think that they would, you know, you always want to say like, okay, churches, schools, police stations, you know, like those are supposed to be safe areas, and she was definitely not safe here. So 14 days later, on the 27th, her body was found in the Texas City dike by fishermen. And that's another one that was just found in the water by people that weren't looking for a body, right? It was just like everyday people doing their hobby or their job, finding these bodies in these areas. Yeah. So sad. Well, and like, that's the thing, too, is that like, these are such spread out places, right? Like where it's not very inhabited. We talked about it in the Calder Road episode, but I have a friend who lives in League City. I was like, are there security cameras on I-45 now? What's going on? Like, what is it about this area? And she was just like, there's a lot of places where you could go and somebody won't notice. I find that incredibly haunting. The answer is like, the real reason why the movie The Strangers is terrifying is because they're like, why are you doing this? And like, because we can. And that's the answer is why is this happening here? Because they can. Yeah. And now after researching this, like when I drive home, there's places here. I know there it's a little more like condensed. Yeah. But here in Arizona, everything's kind of far. Like there are, there's still desert out here. There's still miles and miles and miles of nothing when you're going between certain cities. And now every time I'm like, what's that car doing out there? What are they doing? Yeah. Most of the time it's just like off-road vehicles. But still, you're like, why are you there? It's terrifying to think all of the ways in which you could just get taken. And it's not because you weren't careful and it's not because you weren't vigilant, you know, aware of your surroundings or vigilant. And I think that's one of like the great disservices that when we think about violence against women on a very large scale, there's a narrative in our country that there is like a certain type of person you have to be in order to like get through your life unscathed. And it's you come home at a reasonable time, you dress modestly, you you don't park in dark places like you do all of these things to avoid being hurt rather than perhaps as a society, we could decide that it is no longer acceptable for men to hurt women. Like we could decide that and stick to it. And also of all of the murders that we've seen for the Texas killing field, for the perpetrators that we know, was there one woman, Amanda? No. One single woman who was responsible. 
and I'm not saying women can't do terrible things because they absolutely do. Oh, and we've covered it, right? Bathory, like. Well, think about it. When when someone says, and then the murderer was a woman, and it's always like, oh my gosh, how could they do that? But like, I don't know, you you kind of flip through and you look at, you know, this man did this, this man did this, and you're kind of numb to it. But then it stands out if it's anything different, which is really just sad. Yeah. It's a strange thing. And it's like, we expect that men that do terrible things look like the boogeyman, right? Like you expect you'll be able to see that they look off. And that's not always the case. Look at a lot of the famous serial killers. They were charming and sweet and easy to talk to. If someone is attractive, they have to prove that they're a bad person first, right? In our society. <laughs> our most recent example, Laurie Valenchat Daybell. I feel like most people looked at her and were like, mm, prove to me that she did bad things. And pretty blonde woman, yeah. Pretty blonde woman. And like pretty thin blonde woman. That thin part's very important. <laughs> but Chad doesn't look like a creep. He just looks like an average guy to me. It's true. Yeah, he does look very, very plain, very average, non-threatening in every way. Kind of goofy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He just looks like a dude. In our society, we talk a lot about the stranger down the alley and like Texas Killing Fields is, is for the most part the stranger on the highway. But like that's not the biggest threat to women. No. Well, when you look at some of like the the most prolific serial killers too, like look at Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy or whatever. They don't really look all that scary, you know, when you don't know anything about them. If they just pass you in the grocery store, you wouldn't think twice about passing them. Yeah. I think we like to think that, you know, evil when you see it. And we don't. I feel like the only one that had that vibe was Richard Ramirez. Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but like, I think he also cultivated that look, right? Like, you know, he just wasn't give a little bit of an intense gaze ruffled hair and most people can look a little unhinged yeah it's a mess and i feel like the picture that i imagine when i'm like huh, with him is where he's in his prison uniform yeah and he's looking very intensely but like at nothing and his mouth's like kind of open and he has this kind of sneer which is all in his face and what he's doing i'm sure like his like fourth grade school picture would have been adorable no, if I remember right, I'm pretty sure he had like a friend when he was younger that came forward later that was just blown away. Yeah. And, but he had a shitty life. But anyways. Yeah. But Sarah was another example of somebody who we just couldn't find a lot of information on. Like we wanted to find more, but we couldn't. And, you know, the more we looked, the more it was like this is this feels kind of defeating trying to find more about somebody that it feels like there's just not a lot on. On February 23rd of 2006, Natasha Nicole Solodom, a first grade teacher, was killed by a gunshot to the chest. She was found about an hour after her death floating along Galveston Beach. Her car was found less than a block from where her body was. And they don't know who did it. Oh, and that's a fast turnaround, too. That's a very fast turnaround. And also, like, that's a loud type of murder. Yeah. Right. Like and I would imagine it would have had been like relatively close. So to think that like within an, about an hour. Right. Yeah. What she found the day she disappeared. Yeah. So she was found the same day she went missing an hour later floating in, along Galveston Beach. See, I get that. That's not even enough time to be missing. That's a flat tire. You know, like that's a. Yeah. That's a everyday occurrence. Yeah. That's right away. And like that almost feels like maybe she saw something that she shouldn't have seen or something like that. Like, I don't know. It's just such a, like a quick and brutal death. Like when you think about serial killers, you don't think of somebody who just like walks up and shoots somebody in the chest and like leaves. Right? No. Unless it's criminal minds. Unless it's criminal minds. 
And then Teresa Vanegas disappeared when she was 16 years old. She was last seen near the Green Calle subdivision around 11 p.m. on Halloween night in 2006, which 16-year-olds, that's what they're going to be doing on Halloween night, running around late, doing fun things, right? Yeah. Innocent. Yeah. Remains were found three days after she disappeared across from a high school. The fact that it was near a high school is also a little chilling Mm -hmm. because there's other 16 year olds, you know, in that area. And whoever it was knew that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of, you know, good articles with this same amount of information. But unfortunately, that's about it. Yeah. 27 year old Amanda Nicole Kellum was found on November 10th of 2006 along I-45 by fishermen. She was nude and she had a T-shirt wrapped around her neck. She also had puncture wounds on her chest. And this makes me endlessly angry. Detectives told reporters that Kellum had a criminal history of drug use and sex work. And so there's only a few articles about her. And this is a relatively recent case, right? But it doesn't seem like much has been done. And it could be that it's behind the scenes that we just don't know about it. But I feel like when police tell reporters like, oh, they had a criminal history, what they're telling us is like, Oh, they had a high risk lifestyle. Therefore, it's to be expected, right? Because you didn't fit into that cookie cutter way of how you're supposed to behave in order to not be a murder victim. Yeah. And that's kind of sad when you say this person disappeared, they were doing this versus this person disappeared. They worked in this field. And we saw that with the last um, Calder Road one, too, with, I believe, Heidi, because she worked at a bar. Her life didn't matter. You know, like she didn't deserve the attention that someone else's did. And that's just ridiculous. Yeah, agreed. And the last person we're going to talk about whose murder is still unsolved is Bridget Gearson. And she disappeared in July of 2007. She was found on Crystal Beach about 100 yards from the beach house that she was staying at with her two-year-old daughter and friends. That just breaks my heart. She and her friends were going to take a ride on the beach. She had gone down first. By the time the rust came outside, she was already gone. So it was very, very fast. I don't know if that's like a victim of opportunity or was someone watching her. Partial results of a medical exam state that she was very brutally raped. She was strangled, but that was not the cause of death. She worked at a law firm. She cared for her grandfather and her daughter. So all around, she just seemed like a a sweet person, right? Yeah. Bloodhounds were brought in by Texas EquiSearch, which we know where that came from, right? So Laura Miller's father founded EquiSearch. And in addition to that, mounted deputies helped to search for clues. And it doesn't seem like much was found. Yeah. And you would think, right, like 2007 is relatively recent. You would think that like, one, a crime that happened lightning fast, you would be sloppy enough to leave something. It blows my mind that there's no evidence that's been released. Well, and the fact that she was found only 100 yards from the beach house. So like, was it super fast? Did they move her and bring her back? That's risky to bring her back that close. Yeah. Oh, and it looks like things are still happening for this, too, because there's an article from Crystal Beach Local News from July 15th, 2020, and they held a vigil for her fifth anniversary of her death. They said the Galveston County Sheriff's Office and FBI were going to be hosting a press conference. Yeah. So still looking for information. So sad. Her picture of her and it it looks like probably her daughter. Heartbreaking. It really, really is. 
So these are the 15 missing and murdered women that we found in our research of the Texas Killing Fields. As we mentioned earlier, we have the ongoing cases section on our website where we'll have more information about the victims here. So if you wanted to look for more. Also, if you do have any real information on hunches, you can contact the Texas Crime Stoppers. Their phone number is 1-800-252-TIPS. And we'll also have a link to that on our website and our show notes. Like we said before, the Texas Killing Fields includes a vast number of disappearances, deaths, murders, unidentified people at times. Just it's it's a huge chunk of information. So we have separated it in what we think is the best way to tell the story. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 